It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome, welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I am your host, your civic teacher and neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams. And if you are watching this, you'll see how bright, you know, joyous my face is. But those of you who are listening, you probably can hear the excitement in my voice because I have a delightful guest to bring to the front of the class this morning. I, I need you to be ready for some fire, some fire, sh you know, break out, shut up in your bones is going to break out today. And I am looking forward to you hearing from this guest. I had the pleasure. She was the first candidate that I stumped for in Ohio. This is back in 2014 when she ran for Ohio Secretary of State. And I have like all the pictures of like traveling back and forth to Ohio from New York, early in the morning flights, <laughs> to be out there on the streets, stumping for her in the beginning stages of Higher Heights. And I am so excited to bring this dynamic truth teller, a former Ohio State Senator, National Co-Chair, Bernie Sanders campaign is probably where you've known her and sort of the prominence from there, a media contributor, political contributor, but she's no stranger to the front of a class because she's also a community college professor. Kai, shout out Cuyahoga Community College. And I am happy to bring her to the front of the class. Nina Turner. Good morning, sis. Good morning, L. Joy. Look, I'm smiling. I was backstage, but I was smiling ear to ear. <laughs> You're taking us way back on that 2014 running for Secretary of State. So thank you for that, for being oh, there. Oh, my goodness. Me. Oh, my God. I mean, it was it was a hard year for Democrats across the board, but especially if you got yes. a little chocolate on you, it's hard when you run it statewide. But you were right there as so many other people when many didn't think, you know, I had a snowball's chance in hell which it was hard. I mean, running against an entrenched Republican incumbent, it was extraordinarily hard, not just because of who I was running against, but because when you're making a path or I was following in the footsteps of others, Eljoy, let me be clear, who other black people who, have, you know, has, have run statewide. Um, somebody, you got to keep trying until we get it right. So thank you, sis, for being there for me. That was one of the hardest political times of my life. Yeah, you know, Ohio, right, right. Ohio has a special place in my heart. My mom, even though she was born here in New York, was raised in Ohio in Youngstown specifically, and I still own property in Youngstown. Every now and then I get the letters and they be like, you can sell. And I'm like, no. <laughs> like, I was like, I know Youngstown don't have many jobs right now, but I'm going I'm, to I'm, keep it. Don't sell. <laughs> like, Don't sell. I'm not selling. I'm keeping my property. Right. And I had the pleasure of also recently interviewing Ron Daniels, who's also and like knowing the connection of him as well in, in Ohio. So that's really, really impactful and powerful. And I got to tell you, that race, that year for me 
was the first time that I broke out of just doing politics in the state of New York and nearby, sort of like New Jersey and, you know, D.C. and things like that. It was the first time that I sort of was able to do Ohio and Georgia, Pennsylvania. And I always remember that time fondly and being like you always have a special place in my heart because you were the first one. I was like, I'm flying back every week. (laughs) <laughs> be in your streets for Nina Turner. Anyway, <laughs> since and, and this is your been, f- it's been national ever since. Sorry. For yes. <laughs> so since it's your first time, which I can't believe, I want you to share for the audience, you know, they may have heard different stories from you several times, but, you know, I, I want you to share the story of your first civic action. The first time you became civically engaged. Love this question. I've never had it posed to me in quite this way. So you're making me really go deep. But I would say my first civic action, besides being a big sister of six siblings, seven of us, Lord bless my soul, was to see my mom uh, tell us that we had to feed the homeless, although we did not have a lot of food ourselves. Uh, We were on public assistance when I was growing up, uh, on and off, more on than off. And I can remember my mom vividly, and I'm saying remember because my mom, Eljoy, as you know, and some others who heard me give this talk about my life, uh, you know, she died when she was 42 years old, brain aneurysm. It was a pretty tragic, sudden death for her. But while she was alive for a short 42 years, my mother did pour into the community in ways that people don't often talk about or write about. But yeah, she told us we had a little more than than and some, and that we had an obligation to help feed uh, the homeless. And so I remember, you know, being in the kitchen, uh, putting that miracle whip on sandwiches, making those sandwiches, cutting them in half, putting them in these little baggies. Uh, my mom would buy the Capri Sons. I know I'm really going back for those of you who uh, remember Capri Sons. We put the Capri Sons in there. She would put a piece of fruit or, or a snack bag of uh, chips, and we would go downtown in Cleveland and feed the homeless. That in my mind, was true civic engagement. You know, it's one thing when you have a lot and you give, and that's beautiful because I want people who have a lot to give to feel an obligation to give. It is just another kind of lane when you really don't have a lot, when you are pretty much, you know, food insecure yourself um, to say that from time to time, you got to go and feed people who have even less than you, Eljoy. And I will never forget that moment. And just thank you for making me go that deep because I don't often talk about, this may be the second or third time that I've ever talked about this because I don't often go that that deep. Um, it, it, It makes me sad and it gives me joy too, but it also makes me really sad. As well. Yeah. You know, it, it makes me think of our goddaughter who we currently have custody of, along with other foster children. You know, my husband and I foster. Mm-hmm. And we recently had an incident with her because she sees us give food and money to people, you know, on the street or struggling and things like that. And you know, because you, you know, you have a, a, a son, you know, you start out the 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 money jar in their room. You know, yeah. for them to save money to get their dollars, things like that. Yeah. And we know, and so, you know, people give her birthday money or give her money when they uncles and aunts or whatever. And she had a nice little stash, you know, in her room, clean up her room. She has like $5 left in it and like change. And we're like, where did this money go? She was like, oh, I was giving it to people. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, you know, it turns out like she had 
probably a good hundred dollars, like in random, you know, five dollar bills mm -hmm. or things like that. But she had given all of the money away nearly and she didn't think anything wrong with it. She was like, but you said it was good to give people you know, to yes. get so she was stuffing money in her pocket, like during the day or like out, whatever. And she would just give it to people. And then it was like, okay, well now we have to have a different <laughs> lesson. Like you can't help giving, just giving random money to people <laughs> like from, from that standpoint, but from her context, well, my parents give people money all of the time. And like, yeah. she's always inviting people to our house to eat. She's just like, Oh, because you you do it all the time and so that mirror right that she sees yeah. us doing this and so like why not and it was like well you can't just invite random people we don't know to the not house quite but okay like that. yeah <laughs> right right but so no, i love that story lessons. yeah yeah, no, yeah. For your baby too that's really a good lesson uh, you know that she's absorbing from you and her dad and it's it's just really beautiful it is yeah so one of the other reasons that, you know, I wanted to talk to you is because in addition to your service locally in Ohio, nationally, you know, talk about you being a dynamic truth teller in challenging those of us in the Democratic Party, but also our larger political consciousness. You're also trying to take that to Congress and running. You are currently a candidate for the 11th district in Ohio. Talk to a, a bit about that candidacy, which the election is like this week, <laughs> early voting is probably still happening at this it point. Is. So if you yeah. are in Ohio, you know, make sure to go vote. But talk to us about your run for Congress and what your platform and focus is for that. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly you are correct. Early voting has started. So if you are in Ohio, period, as Eljoy said, please go out to vote. Unfortunately, the voter turnout across the state, Eljoy, is very low. Oh, it boggles, it burns me. As you mentioned, the Secretary of State's race, I ran in that race to protect and expand access to the ballot box. And so it definitely makes me feel some type of way when people do not go to vote. And there's a lot of compounding uh, factors happening in Ohio right now, um, not the least of which we have gerrymandering up the wazoo, which is happening all over the country, especially where Republicans are in control. Not to say that Democrats, who, when we do have the pen, we have gerrymandered too, but this is at epic proportions because of the type of technology that allows one to very much laser focus on these kinds of dirty deeds. And I call them that because I think voters should be able to pick their elected representatives and not the other way around. And when you have uh, people who feel like they want to hold on to power uh, no matter what, that's what gerrymandering is really about. And it is not right. We're going to have two primaries, unfortunately, in the great state of Ohio. You have the statewide races and also the congressional race on May the 3rd. So that's next week. We're doing the countdown right now. But unfortunately, we're going to have another primary that will have the legislature. And the legislature is the state Senate and the state reps in the state of Ohio. That will be at some point in August. They still do not have maps. And it's going to cost the taxpayers of this great state 20 million extra dollars, uh, notwithstanding also the pressure that is putting on the election professionals who have to juggle with having two primaries. It is wrong by every stretch of the imagination. The Republicans that control the legislature in Ohio did not want to do the right thing as directed by the Ohio Supreme Court. And here we are. It is a sad commentary that is happening in my state. And I'm sure we're in the top three of worst states during this midterm election cycle. But vote, 
you know, still I want people to vote even in their uh, madness, sadness, WTF moments they may be having about what is happening and the man manipulation that is going on at the hands of the Republican controlled legislature. Please, please, please go vote. So I'm running in this race because I do believe that the people of the greater Cleveland area need a champion. They need somebody that is going to fight with them and also fight for them. And very much in the tradition of Congressman Louis Stokes, who was the first African-American to serve in the Congress from the great state of Ohio that came from a fight. It came through the Voting Rights Act. He fought along with some of his contemporaries and planned and helped to create the 21st uh, Congressional District as it was historically known and now the 11th Congressional District. He fought for that. And I use that as an example at, to say that no, most good things don't happen by chance. They happen because people see a need and they're willing to put something on the line for it. And so I see a very clear need for the people who in my in my in my community, and that need is to to have somebody that will fight. Uh, Eljoy, you mentioned at the top when you introduced me that I am somebody that will push and make the Democratic Party think. I do believe that I am from the Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm School of the Democratic Party. You've heard me say this time and time again: unbought and unbossed. And there does come a time where you need people with extra special titles to stand up and speak a certain truth and not be afraid to do so because they might not be invited to the Christmas party. One of every two children in my city go to bed hungry at night. And that means that their mamas and their daddies are probably going to bed hungry at night. That means that the community is not thriving. It is simply in survival mode. That is no way to live. I do believe we should have universal health care in this country, not just vote the right way, not just say, oh, if it comes my way, I'll vote for it. No, get out in the streets and fight for it side by side with the activist community and the faith-based community and that do not have universal health care, and that people deserve so much more than what they have right now. And we were asked as a nation to bail out Walsh, too big to fail. We've done all of that contorting of ourselves to save systems that don't serve us. But when it comes time to put a down payment on the hood where people are misunderstood, we always make an excuse about urban hoods, suburban hoods, and, and rural hoods. People <laughs> in those hoods need help and I'm yeah running. yeah you know what's interesting is I am we're going to talk a bit before you go later about the economic bill of rights piece but in Martin Luther King Jr.'s where do we go from here who also talks about social and economic bill of rights there is a, a passage I'm going to read to you and read sure. for our audience that says you know, the concept is emerging that beneficiaries of welfare measures are not beggars, but citizens endowed with rights defined by law. The principle yeah. that citizens should have maximum feasible participation in community planning and other decisions affecting their lives is growing. The right of all parents, not only the wealthy, to have a significant role in educational decisions affecting their children, you know, and he talks about in welfare, public housing, education, Arbitrary abuse of power cannot be arrested by means readily available to the victimized. Talking about, you know, the the crimes that are committed against people who are in vulnerable situations, whether that be, you know, in rent, high rents, whether that be in not being able to afford, as you are talking about, food to be in this wealthy country, but still go hungry. All of those things, like there seems to be no recourse 
you know, for those victims of those crimes that are 100% preventable, that we have the resources to address, but don't have the will, or at least people in power don't have the will to do so. And that that is a crime, right? That is neglect. And often, even here in New York recently, the mayor, you know, released a plan and the media and others are talking about, oh, he's given showering money on his critics. And I was like, I hate this narrative. He is investing in communities, right? And it's like, I don't agree with Eric Adams on a whole lot, but him giving money on mental health services is investing in the community. Him giving money to expand summer youth employment is investing in communities. Him expanding, you know, school. Like, why is it that you feel that addressing hunger and healthcare and affordable is some somehow like, you know, as you mentioned, you know, big company companies and corporations are allowed to give this bill out and that's not considered a like treat or anything like that. But God that's forbid great. we feed people. <laughs> God forbid, you know, we cancel student debt. Like, you know, that that's a that's a treat. I I don't believe how how can you expect that? Yeah, and the, the word showering, too, it's right. the taxpayers' money, Eljo. I mean, that money belongs to the people of the great state of, well, of New York. I mean, he's mayor of New York and, and not the governor, but that money that's being invested back into the community is really just that, as you laid it out. And, and so we need a paradigm shift of consciousness to think that elected officials, it's not their money. I mean, they walk around and act like it at times, but it's your money. And it's a social contract that we should have one to another. So that mental health services and investing in education, all that, it is an investment that will pay back dividends for the whole. And that's how we have to see it. And when politicians get a clue, and, and, and from time to time, we do get a clue. When they get a clue, it is because of the bubbling up of the grassroots. This stuff doesn't come top down, especially if it has great humanitarian import. It comes from the people bubbling up to say this must happen. And also, you know, and I love that there's a civics lesson. I would love for people to think about elected officials in this way, that we, you know, and I'm saying we, I've been blessed to, to be actively elected. We hold your power for a period of time. Ultimately, it is your power and you get to decide how you want your power used. That is beautiful. And that's why we need more people to participate. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more on Sunday Civics. Cool boy and school girl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Welcome back to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I am your host, Eljoy Williams. You know, I want to go to, I'm oversensitive about you know, being from New York, living in New York, and a lot of our media is based in New York. And we always have this context of, I recognize that privilege in that, like in not understanding what other states across the country are experiencing, what other communities are experiencing. Talk to us about the landscape of states like Ohio, right, in that mirror majority of other, you know, there are only a handful of places like New York. More often than not, there are more like states like Ohio and communities that are in Ohio that are really struggling. 
And that is not something that is presented in a regular and continuous basis that people have a context of, particularly when you're in coastal cities and things of that nature. So talk to us about the landscape of Ohio or states like Ohio and what people need on the federal level. You know, as we are states all across, obviously will be electing, reelecting representatives. What should they be looking for? I'm about to do an episode where I'm going to walk people through how to grade their representatives who have been in office incumbents. And I was like, you know, send it to them in the mail, send them a a report card (laughs) before they start coming for your vote. Right. But like, what do people need? What are people experiencing? What's the landscape for states like Ohio? We're Midwestern. You know, we are an agricultural state, even though people might not necessarily see us that way, but agriculture is a big industry here. Uh, When you come further my way, in the greater Cleveland area, you know, Cleveland was known as a steel town before that industry floundered. That was us. Um, Now, more often when people think of Cleveland or greater Cleveland area, they probably think about the healthcare facilities that we have, the Cleveland clinics, the university hospitals, Metro Health, which is a county hospital and one of the best in the country. So we certainly are known for uh, the healthcare industry here in in the greater Cleveland area. Ironically, though, and unfortunately, uh, the very people who need to have access to those services the most don't necessarily get them. We have a lifespan crisis, depending on where you live. Your life can be 20, you know, you can live 20 years uh, less than a person that lives two miles up the street from you. That is an indictment on uh, not only this community, but this nation, because there are many communities like that across the country. Uh, People need jobs. They need to have a living wage and they need health care, not just access. We got access. You can walk through the door right now and get into the hospital, but whether or not they're going to serve you or not becomes the question because we do not have universal health care. I've talked to so many people, Eljoy, who, you know, before they're even served, it's what's your health insurance? You know, oh, you dying and bleed? What's your health insurance? So that is problematic. And that is why I am such not just a strong proponent of, but out there in the streets for. I've worked side by side with the National Nurses United, you know, others, uh, certainly Senator Bernie Sanders on both of his presidential campaigns, to really say to the people that you deserve it and we must have it. And that is something, even if, if we had um, universal health care, that would deal, it wouldn't eradicate, you know, racism and anti-blackness in our social, political, all of those things where it, it, it shows itself, but it would go a long way to helping um, those situations. We know that the black maternal rate is, uh, death rate is very high. Um, that rate for, for mamas, maternal, for, for black infants, still three times higher than that of, uh, of white women. So we need universal health care, but those are the things that I hear the most, a living wage, and having health care. Their workers are they're striking to uh, the Sherwin-Williams workers, for example. That's a paint company here in, in the city of Cleveland. Workers were on strike for better wages, work conditions, and benefits. We know that Starbucks workers are unionizing all over the country. Right here in greater Cleveland, several of the stores where you have the workers there saying, we deserve better than what we are getting. So 
Ohio, Ohio needs so much help. And in the legislative level, good God almighty, Republicans have super majorities. And that is one of the reasons why things are going wrong because these people do not care by and large about the well-being of the citizens of this state. And when you try to emulate states like Florida with the don't say gay bill, which is percolating through the legislature right now, you have another representative that is working to erode access to uh, abortions, which is part of reproductive health for women. They've been trying that for years. They tried that mess when I was in the legislature and you had to bump back on those things. I mean, El Joe, you got to push back on these people. But a lot of ground that we are losing in this country is not just by way of what's happening or not happening on the federal level. It surely is by way of what is happening in state legislatures all across this country. So we need people to vote in every single election cycle. There is a decision to be made and those of us who uh, believe that government plays a role in helping people to live optimally, we have got to focus in on state legislatures. My God, it's cruel. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wanted to, because as you're, you're talking, this all connects to you know, something that you've talked about during your congressional campaign recently, I mean, in general, talking about an economic bill of rights. And certainly that goes back to, at least in my knowledge, back to FDR, right, yeah. of creating a basis of what the standard of living, if you are, you know, in the United States, this is the basics that we believe every everyone should have, right? Yeah. Everyone should have a roof over their head. Everyone should have the ability to work. Everybody should have the ability to eat and not go to bed hungry, right? Yes. Like there's some basics that we can all agree on what, what, whatever our political affiliation. That's and right. one of the things I try to remind people is like, you don't start with your political affiliation first. You start with your values first, Come on. right? What are your values, right? And then your political ideology based on the current political landscape, because it can change you know, determines how, how you play out or how you engage on your, your values. Right. So I always say for me currently, based upon my political values, the party that aligns most, it doesn't align a hundred percent, but the party that aligns most is democratic party, both locally and federally to allow me to engage in politics. Now that could change in 10 years, 20 years or what have you. But what yes. I do know is my basic political values. Right. And so talk to us about in this now modern time, although I don't think the language of FDR in terms of the basics of, you know, the economic bill of rights is like any different <laughs> than we're asking for now. I'm just like, right. same since the forties, but that's talk to us about, about from your perspective, what that's like. Oh, Elja, I just want to say, amen. I mean, you, you laid that thing out. It's not much different. It's not, you know, after, War, and I and I need to give a shout out uh, before I forget. I want to give a shout out to Alan Minsky, who's the executive director of Progressive Democrats of America, and Dr. Harvey K, who is an expert. He's a professor. He's a historian and and an expert uh, on FDR and the ability to be able to work with them as they put forward in a deeper way the 21st century version of FDR's Economic Bill of Rights or Second Bill of Rights. I'm just really happy and honored to be on this journey with them and so many others, people like Dr. Derek Hamilton of the New School. You know, he came up his the idea of baby bonds that we heard from when Senator Booker put it forward. That actually was a collaboration with Dr. 
uh, Dr. Hamilton at, at that time. And there are so many economists out there who understand that there has to be a moral connection uh, to the economy. And I love you know them. Steph Stephanie Kelton is another economist that understands that. So the 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights is about building on the strong foundation that FDR had in the 1940s. After World War II, the president really understood that people needed something else. They needed some guarantees. And he was clear about that. And the oligarchs of his day, the status quo keepers of his day, you know, called him a socialist. They did everything to try to derail it. And he said, you know, basically, hey, I, you know, judge me by my enemies and I welcome your hatred. Part of what FDR was trying to cement in the American imagination is that together we can have these things, we can create a social contract and that you do deserve nice things. So to your point, Eljoy, education was in there, housing, healthcare, um, making sure that we take care of people who are unable to take care of themselves, a jobs guarantee, all of that stuff right now. So we are talking about, you know, there's uh, something in the Song of Solomon from the Bible that the, that there's nothing new under the sun. And to build on what FDR, the, the, the White House conducted a poll. And in that poll during the 1940s, they found that the majority of Americans, the over 80% of Americans agreed with the second Bill of Rights. It was, I think, like 95% of Democrats, uh, over 70-something percent of Republicans, if you can believe that. And on the whole, almost 85%, over 80% of Americans agreed with that vision. So the things that freedom-fighting progressives like me are putting forward are not new to the American imagination. And just as in the 1940s, the overwhelming majority of the American people were on the side of that kind of vision, fast forward to the 21st century and the overwhelming majority of Americans are for that vision too. They might not necessarily label it progressive, but they understand I need healthcare. They understand that I'm underinsured or uninsured. They understand that I can't afford my prescription drugs. They understand that I'm not making a living wage, that everything else is going up, but my, my wages are not keeping up with inflation. Those are the basic things that they understand. And building upon what FDR did before he died, what he was trying to submit again in the American uh, imagination, you have people like uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. with the Poor People's Movement. We have Reverend Barber in the 21st century building on that tradition and, and has created the 21st century version of the Poor People's Movement, bringing people together from all backgrounds based on economics, based on where they sit on the economic continuum and the fact that the hell that they are catching is systemic, that poverty is a policy choice and we can make and have different policies. And then in walks the 20th century, one of the greatest unionists of the 20th century, Asa Philip Randolph. And Eljo, I pulled up something from that. Uh, Asa Philip Randolph built on FDR's Four Freedoms, but there is a book called, a booklet called A Freedom Budget for All Americans, Budgeting Our Resources 1965 to 1975 to achieve freedom from want. And in this document that was created, Aesop Philip Randolph were able, was able to get about 150 uh, prominent and, and, and soul-searching freedom fighters to sign on to this of his time. And it was abolition of poverty, guaranteed full employment, full protection and high economic growth, adequate minimum wages, farm income parity, guaranteed incomes for all unable, okay, unable to work, 
a decent home for every American family, modern health services for all, full educational opportunities for all, updated social security and welfare programs, and lastly, equitable tax and money policies. I mean, Eljoy, he's speaking to us right now on that. And all of that was built upon a very strong foundation that F the President FDR created. And so now we're building upon all of that with the 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights. And people can go to Common Dreams, just put Common Dreams into Google, and you will be able to find three or four articles that have been written by Dr. Harvey K. and Alan Minsky about that vision. I fully embrace that vision, and I'm so glad to be on the freedom fighting lane to get us a 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights. We deserve it. Yeah, you know, it, it really goes to, again, and, you know, I, I agree with you. Anytime you're talking about people sharing in prosperity, that as wealthy a country as we are, for us to have things like hunger and housing and jobs not addressed is just, just doesn't make any sense to me. That's right. And, you know, people automatically throw the socialist and then your, you know, thing. And I'm always like repelling. I'm like, look. You throw whatever title you want to throw <laughs> from that stand. I just believe everybody should eat. Now, if you believe that that's socialist, because I believe everybody should eat and that kids shouldn't go to bed hungry or whatever, that's on you, whatever title you mm -hmm. want to do, whatever. But what I know I am on the side of is baby's not going to bed hungry. So, like, whatever, you know, like just bringing it back to the basic, because I, you know, I agree with you in this time frame, and it's not like any other time frame of the political fights. And I always try to tell people to sort of, you know, look at people's motives, right? And we have That's been true. given and fed this diet that if we give to others, that if others have what we have, that somehow there is less for you. And it's not, right? It's not because anybody asks, what the price tag is when, you know, we just keep giving military money. It was like, oh, we go to anybody ask where we getting that money from? Anybody ask where we getting the money from for a lot of the different things that are passed in Congress that are, you know, for it when we have, you know, being this wealthy country and sort of not taking care of the people within it. And I just want to challenge That's people great. to think beyond what could we do as a society? How mm. much higher could we be? If the yes. basic things are taken care of for people, if the basics, and I don't believe it will drive down competition or anything like that. I actually think it'll actually spur it because my, if right. my basics are taken care of, then I can think about calculating how we get to Mars. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> like I can think about like, how do we build a different city? Like I can think about all of those other things because I don't have, I don't have to use that bandwidth for, you know, how do I pay my rent? How am I going to address this health crisis or things like that? That's right. And Eljo, to that point, it is about, you know, and, and freedom budget. I mean, that was brilliant on Aesop Philip Randolph's a part to call it a freedom budget, because you're right. Once you have those basics, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you can't self-actualize, baby. If you're still trying to find shelter and food, you can never get there mentally if you're always in survival mode. And so I want people to imagine, because you brought up scarcity, that made me think about you know, we are programmed to think that if you have, that means I don't have. But if we were on a sandy beach and there was sand as far as the eye can see, and there were hundreds of us and everybody had a bucket, 
and you said to them, look, get as much sand as, as, as you know, fill up your bucket and don't worry. You, you can get more sand if you need it. No one would be on that beach saying, oh my God, there's not enough sand for all of us because it's there as far as the eye can see. It's there. Yeah. And yeah. that is the same kind of mentality that we have to have about the need to lift one another. And at some points, it can't be about equality. We got to have an equity thing going on because equity says, I'm going to give you what you need, even if you're getting a little more than me because you need it more. And once we start thinking in that way, you being edified edifies me. That's we it. We can be edified together. That's it. Well, Nina, I know you have to hit the campaign trail and continue. You know, we could talk all day uh, <laughs> and educate folks all day, but I want to be respectful of you getting out and hitting them streets. So thank you so very much for taking the time to join us and to have this conversation. And like I said, to really begin to or to continue the conversation of us getting to the root of our political values, our va our humanity, and then remaking our government and our society in a way that fits those values and that you have every right to say so and to do so. Because I think that's the other piece is people don't believe that they have the right to change. Well, this is how it's always been done. And this is how, you know, we're doing, you have every right to do so and yeah. really challenging people to do that. So thank you so much. Amen. Thanks, LJ. It's a pleasure to be in front of the classroom with you. <laughs> Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more on Sunday Civics. How can it be that you love the most unlovable part of me? Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm your host, Eljoy Williams. And I really enjoyed that conversation with Nina Turner. She is a candidate in the race for the 11th district in Ohio, among other things. And as we said, that election is happening this week. So make sure to check your information if you are an Ohio voter and you're in that district. If what you need to do to make sure that your ballot, that your vote is counted, because as she mentioned, turnout is low. We did have the other candidate in that race, Congresswoman Chantel Brown, who you may remember won the special election for that seat. We had her on during, uh, I think, a couple of months ago when the special election was going on. So make sure to point back to that interview if you want to hear more information about her. But... As June reminded me, we did have Nina on the show before. I thought this was her first time, but she has been on the show before when we profiled Ohio before. So if you did not hear that conversation, make sure to go to sundaycivics.org and you can hear that conversation that we had with her before. And speaking of June, we want to shout out June Moses, June like the month, Moses like the Bible, who this past weekend was celebrated for her hard work and continuous organizing and tenant organizing for her building in Harlem, New York. And I want to shout out the greatest assistant ever and make sure that we give her her flowers for the work that she continues to do. Now, in the conversation with Nina, we ended the conversation talking about the Economic Bill of Rights and made reference to this goes back to FDR, to his presidency, when back at his State of the Union address, 
he made mention, this is January 11th, 1944. He made a State of the Union message to Congress and he advocated for a second Bill of Rights. And I wanted to just take a moment for you to hear it in his own words what he meant by that as we have this conversation. In our day, certain economic proofs have become accepted as self-evident. A second Bill of Rights, under which a new basis of security and prosperity can be established for all, regardless of station or race or creed. Among these are the right to a useful and remunerative job the right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation. The right of every farmer to raise and sell his products at a return which will give him and his family a decent living. The right of every businessman, large and small, to trade in an atmosphere of freedom, freedom from unfair competition and domination by monopolies at home or abroad. The right of every family to a decent home. The right to adequate medical care and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health. The right to adequate protection from the economic fears of old age, sickness, accident, and unemployment. The right to a good education. All of these rights spell security. And after this war is won, we must be prepared to move forward in the implementation of these rights to new goals of human happiness and well-being. For unless there is security here at home, there cannot be lasting peace in the world. That was the voice of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, in talking about his economic bill of rights. And if you go to sundaycivics.org, we'll have all of the information up for you to read more about it, to learn more about it. And he wasn't the only one calling for this, not only in the immediacy of 1944, as we go from 44 to the 50s to the 60s to MLK advocating for an economic bill of rights. And as he described, this is what these are the specific rights that he referred to employment, the right to work in having an adequate income for food, shelter and recreation. It sound familiar, right? A jobs guarantee or some of the language you may hear being discussed right now or a livable wage when we're talking about the minimum wage or people being able to not work crazy hours in order in multiple jobs in order to be able to provide the basics for themselves and their family. Similar there. Farmers rights to a fair income. So farmers all across the country and obviously there were many more farmers during that time than they are now, but we still do, right? The freedom from unfair competition and monopolies. Just think about how many corporations right now, the conglomerates that exist, and it makes it very difficult to create fair competition in the marketplace at this current time. Decent housing, another fight that we are consistently fighting right now. 
adequate medical care, social security and education. Right? These are all fights that we can point to right this moment <laughs> that we are talking about these fights that unions are having. These are fights that workers are having. These are fights that communities are having. These are fights that congressional members are battling in Congress and in state legislatures all across the country. So imagine if we had moved forward and, you know, he wasn't talking about enshrining this within the Constitution, but basically making it a guarantee by federal law. And, you know, talk about what presidents can do in this instance. And he sent staff because this during this time, you know, it's not like Cong the Congress had a lot of staff to work on the language of this. But, you know, he proposed this in his State of the Union address, backed it up by making sure that we had the staff, the legal support, legislative support to try to execute and get this done. And, you know, sadly, we know it doesn't happen. Happen. Um, but, you know, fast forward to the 60s when MLK Jr. is also talking about these same rights. And then we land on today where we all, all of our advocacy right now, besides racial justice, can be tied to these same issues, economic rights, right? Unfair competition, decent housing, medical care, education. These are all basic organizing things that we are organizing on right now. Issues we're organizing on right now, not only in the state legislatures on the state level, but also on the federal level. So imagine if we take care of the basics. Imagine if people have adequate income for food, shelter, and their own pursuit of happiness. We're not saying everybody needs to be a millionaire, but everybody should be able to have their basics covered and not have to worry about that. And I said this earlier, and I, I really, really do mean this in terms of, you know, when I'm sitting crafting by myself or reading you know, other works from folks, I'm thinking about if we did not have to think about where's my next meal coming from? And I'm saying we collectively, if those who are at the poverty line and below didn't have to worry about, am I going to have a place to stay? Am I going to have a roof over my head? Are my children going to have enough to eat? If we didn't have to worry about those basic things and we are a wealthy enough country, we are a wealthy enough country where people do not have to worry about that. If we were able to get those basics taken care of, to get people the basics that they need, imagine from a human, a human lens, what we would be able to accomplish if we could think about the idea you have percolating in your head of, you know, a new store, the idea you have percolating in your hair, in your head about solving cancer or being able to get from here to Mars, <laughs> you know, imagine the higher thinking, the higher consciousness we would be able to have as human beings if we can eradicate poverty. If we could ensure that people have the basics that they need, imagine if we're able to do that, what it would mean in terms of wars, in terms of people fighting over resources and things like that. Now, I'm not one to believe like, oh, if you eradicate poverty, all is going to be 
well in the world people won't be fighting and there will be no murders and things like that i'm not that naive to believe that there's still going to be conflict because we're still human beings but imagine how much more it is reduced how many less children are in harm's way how many murders reduce how many robberies reduce how many wars are eliminated because people are not fighting over basics and we have the ability and the resources to do it. And the only thing that is missing is the will. Now, I know some of y'all listening, including some folks who are on different political ideologies are trained from either a media standpoint, either your political ideology to immediately think that this is socialism, that I'm preaching socialism. Listen, I don't put a label on this. In terms of political, these are these are my values as a human being that I believe that we should be able to if we have the resources and we do to be able to take care of people and to meet their basic needs. That is a value for me as a human being. Now, I may execute that belief, that value through my political ideology, through a political party, through my politics and continue to advocate and push and things of that nature. Absolutely, yes. But at the core of my values as a human, be uh, human being, I believe that we need to take care of people and take care of their basics. And there is no reason why in my mind, in my heart, <laughs> in my spirit, that if we have the resources to do that and we are simply not doing it because uh, somebody didn't do it for me, student loans. Well, I had to pay student loans. And so why should everybody else? Well, come on, man. Let's think beyond the constant diet that we have been fed that fed that the scarcity model that if other people are able to thrive and get the resources that they need, that somehow it takes away from me. When we have every evidence, all the numbers suggest we can look and see that we have the ability to take care of it all. And if you don't believe me, then you can just pick up the Financial Times, pick up a Wall Street Journal, um, look at our most recent history just in the past five to 10 years on how much money we invested in other corporate interests to bail them out to save their industries rather than investing in and saving communities, children and people in general. So if we have money for that, Ask yourself, if we have money to bail out an airline industry, if we have money to bail out banks, if we have money to do all of that, how, t tell me, how can you reconcile that we don't have money to make sure that everybody is in a safe and adequate place to live? How do we not have money to address health care? How do we not have money to ensure that no child in this country goes to bed hungry? You can't. You absolutely cannot. There is no evidence that suggests that <laughs> that is possible. So, you know, I, I, I'm pushing for us to think beyond what we have been fed, beyond what we have been told. This is the only way that it, we can exist beyond. You know, I know we only know capitalism and we've been fed the diet that everything else doesn't work. But I want us to think beyond that and think how we can raise our consciousness 
that we can change our level of thought and also demand something different from those who are representing us and remember that the power resides with us and that they are just representatives to carry out what we believe and what we believe. And I believe that so many or more of you are thinking the same and with me the same way that this is something we need and would actually be beneficial to the people of this country and then a model for the rest of the world. And quite frankly, the rest of the world has already in some instances done some of this and we just the late ones. So remember, go to sundaycivics.org. You can find more information. We put a nice little reading list together for you on some of this for you to check it out and think, read a little bit more for yourself and come to your own conclusion. Because again, these are my political values. This is what I believe. I passionately believe. But what do you believe? What are your thoughts on this? I'd love to hear it. SundayCivics.org. I'm Eljoy Williams, your civics teacher. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back next Sunday. Have a good one. It's cool.